Kyle Evil to the right hand, puts her down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Leopold just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Liebold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. What is going on? Sorry for the delay. Welcome. I am hoping that my audio is okay. If it's not, and you're watching live, please let me know. We've been having some technical difficulties. I'm missing a cord, but we're trying to make it work anyways. Thank you to Waz for being patient. Everyone who's waiting, thank you for your patience. I apologize if the audio is not that clear on my end tonight, but I'm not going to be the one doing the majority of the talking. I'm pretty excited for this episode. This is one that's been like a real long time coming. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Uh, But before we 
get into it. This episode, as always, proudly brought to you by the good people at True Temper Hockey. Of course, puck support. And I think at some point during the show, we might even give away some blade tape. My friend Adrian, the owner of Blade Tape, always likes to contribute to the show. So stick around for that. I want to say happy late Father's Day to all the dads out there, especially mine. Getting emotional already. I feel like this could be an emotional show. Um, you never know what you're going to get here. Hockey to hell and back. Still nobody has commented. Let me know. There's lots of people watching. If somebody, throw a comment. Let me know if you can hear me okay. Waz, give me a thumbs up back in the green room if I'm good. Are we good? Oh, he's giving me two thumbs up. You know it's good. Also, this show tonight brought to you by Edges of Muskoka. I have been working there over the last couple of months doing private lessons and small group change, uh, training. Sorry, some comments coming in now. I'm reading them. If you're in Muskoka at all this summer or ever, stop by Edges. Go see the good people over there. Get your skates sharpened. Or on top of that, come work with me. Come make a trip to one of the most beautiful places on earth to train with me and maybe even with Muskoka Hockey this summer. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. If you follow me on social media at Mental Health Hockey and you've seen my stories, you may have seen me carrying around this book over the last week. I decided that it's time for me to make some changes in my life. It's time for me to get my life in order. I've been doing this show for about three years. I've been in recovery for three years. And, you know, I've done a lot of things that are great. I'm really proud of myself for where I've, you know, been able to get to from where I was at. And, you know, you're going to hear a little bit of another story like that here very shortly. Um, but I just, I really wasn't happy. I'm like, I think there's more to life than what I'm doing right now. And I think for me to get where I want to get go, to go, I can't even talk tonight, that I, I need to make some changes. I need to get organized. I need to, I need to get back to finding gratitude. I need to make a plan. So the gratitude journal, there's going to be a link. If you're watching this, you can go to my social media, but if you're listening to this at the end of the show, you'll be able to download everything that I'm doing. Follow along. Not for me, for you. If you want to, you know, journal every night and have it all in one place and set goals and get your priorities straight. My dad's telling me it's muffled. Whatever. Deal with it, dad. Just kidding. Anyways. Have to do something a little different, too. I want to play this video, uh, but it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, have to happen a little bit differently than I anticipated, but we're going to share the screen and I'm hoping that we're able to play it here. Let me see. And we'll get right into the episode, what you guys are all here for. Stacy has been playing a major role in the University of Vermont's stellar hockey season. Thank you. 
spot right inside, trying to cut the corner. Throws to the top, spot, Forward there, beautiful play on the rush, leading the rush, past the box, and wow. Down in the neutral zone, stepped across the low line, right circle, shot Dave Hamilton, rebound, down and score! Wassidy on Stacey, bottom of the line. Tears coming, I have goosebumps. Get me my equipment. Let's go. All right. Yeah, a little a little backstory to that video, Brady. Um so when I when I was a freshman at UVM, one of my childhood friends, my best friend came, uh they would always come on the weekend to to watch my games and uh so the kid who made that video, he was um my friend came to watch and he he told my roommate that he was having a baby that he was expecting. Um, after the game, I I came back to the dorm and my roommate says, "Hey, your buddy's having a kid, eh?" I said, "What?" I had no idea. He told he told my roommate before he told me. Anyways, long story short, that that same kid made me that video when I was in treatment uh, two years ago to boost my spirits. And uh, so yeah, that's the backstory of that little video. Incredible, incredibly kind, and I can only imagine. Um, you know, when you're you're in a pretty dark place, feeling pretty low, as you know, I know of being in treatment. I know a lot of people watch, listen to the show have have been to treatment themselves. It's not, you know, always a fun place to be in, though we work on ourselves. But to get something like that, you know, certainly uh, is just incredibly important to have those moments that lift us up. And and what a guy to do that. And you know, we can look at look at that all these years later. And I hope you're proud of 
of your accomplishments, even though I know, you know, maybe your hockey career didn't end quite the way that you, uh, you hoped. Yeah. I mean, um, so first off, I would, let me express my gratitude towards you, Brady. Thank you so much for giving me this platform to share my story. Um, let me tell you, it's been years that I want to share this, but, um, I had to, what happened basically, I had to prove to myself a couple of things before I can come out and, and share and, and, you know, hopefully make an impact. And that was one to get clean, but two to remain clean for a longer period of time. So yeah. I'm at that point now where, where I've, I proved that to myself, where I've been living on my own, my own house for the last year or so. And, and you and I both know that when you're alone, if you have your own place, you're, your own car, whatever you, there's so much places to hide. Nobody would know, you know, if, if I were to go pick up and come home, nobody would know, but I had to kind of get past that and, um, and really just prove to myself that I could stay clean. And, and now that I'm there, uh, you know, I'm excited to be sharing this journey. Um, it's my personal journey with all of you, but it, which started as most of you know, with, uh, some hockey dreams and, um, it just took an unexpected turn during, during my sophomore season at UVM. So, I mean, I really we'll wanna, Waz, I really want to dive into that and I kind of want to go in order, but there's never any order here. And I'm so, I, as selfishly, I'm excited to hear it. And I know there's a lot of people watching right now. A lot of people listening to this after that are also excited, but before we get into it, I, I just, because you brought that point up, because again, there's a lot of people that are in recovery or looking to, to get into recovery or have people uh, that they love and care about who are either using right now or are in recovery. Um, but for the people who are in recovery, you know, that's a big one. You said no one would know, right? I have my own place. I have my own car. No one would know. And like for a while, that's kind of what it was always about other people. But at the end of the day, we know, right? And that's all that matters. Like we can't let ourselves down. I don't know. I just want, we don't want to get into that too much right now, but is that kind of where you're at too? Cause that's what I, it's like, yeah, no one else would know, but I still have to look myself in the mirror. I still have to put my head down on my pillow every night and, and to know that, you know, I'm living a, a life you know, that I'm proud of. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. It's, um, you got to look inside when, when you really want to change for me. Um, it was a mind shift that I experienced during treatment. And, and once I discovered, um, how to use my mind, how to think the power of thought and, um, just to use that as, as our most, it's our most powerful asset as human beings. And one, once I discovered that, um, things start to change. But going back to the question where, uh, or what we both said, uh, where no one would know, um, that was for me because everything was so secretive for so many years. Um, so I essentially became an expert at hiding things that, you know, just being secretive. And, and I, that was the major hurdle that I had to prove to myself, which, Obviously, it's not, we don't have this thing figured out. You and I both know that it's, it's, it becomes a lifestyle now. It's my daily opponent, I'd say, um, opioid use. And I guess all of, all of substances, really. Um, it, if I take a day off, I don't know. I don't want to know what will happen, you know. So it's, um, it's getting over that, getting honest with yourself. That's the, obviously, step one is, is just when you're ready to get honest. And that's where, that's, that's where I'm at basically in, uh, in the recovery journey. And it's, it's exciting because now 
once you get past that, those first few months, I find of, um, it's hard the first few months and, and we all know it, uh, especially with opioids, the withdrawal process, um, is a beast of its own. But once you, uh, once you get honest and you figure out how to implement routines and routines that you, that you're in love with, really, you can put all kind of routines in place. But if you're, if you don't like them, if, if they're not driving you, if they're not motivating you to become better, um, what's the point of having those routines? So implementing the right routines, um, getting honest and experience that mind shift is what was what's when things start changing in treatment. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm now closing in on, I guess a year and a half to two years of my recovery road and just eager to share the darkness of my past and, and where, where, um, the brighter life lays ahead with me. So, uh, yeah, let's get into this and, uh, excited. Let's, let's chop, let's chop that up was I'm so excited to hear too, before just to get a little preface here, how, how we connected. So, uh, a couple of years ago now, you know, my phone number, I think was attached to my website and different things. And so I'm not even sure how you got my phone number, but all of a sudden I got this text message. I'm just going to share a little bit of it. It says, Hey Brady, my name is Washington T.O. Stacy. Sorry for the random text. First of all, LOL. But yeah, anyways, I don't want to take too much of your time. I'm currently in rehab in Huntington, Quebec. And my counselor came across your story as it's almost identical to mine. So she had me watch your clip and sure enough. Yep. We basically walked the same road. Then you went on to tell me a little bit more about your story that you can tell, but that was on March 8th, 2021. And here we are over two years later doing the show. Cause you mentioned here, I would love to come on the show. I would love to share my story when the time is right. So I just wanted to let everybody know that's how we connected. You reached out to me over two years ago and here we are all this time later and you're ready to share your story. So let's, Let's do it, man. Like, take us back as, as far as you want to go. Tell us a little bit about who Waz is and, and where you're from and kind of, you know, what your childhood was like. And then ultimately, you know, what led you down the, the path of addiction, how bad it got, all those things. I would love to hear it. And please talk as much as you want, because it makes my job way easier. And people are here to listen to you, not me. So please, Waz, take it away. And uh, yeah, I just appreciate you, man. We're all here. We're listening. And we all have your back and I love you, man. And uh, just proud of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Hell yeah, Brady. So yeah, just a little bit off that. Um, so I was in treatment and maybe two, three weeks in. Um, so I was just that all that, that opiate fog was still there, still, um, you know, surface. And um, before I went to rehab, I was two weeks clean. Uh, so I got to treatment. I had a little bit of a head start on most people, uh, as we know, who get most people get there still under the influence. But I knew this time around I was um, I was ready and I, I wanted to be there. But um, so, yeah, my my counselor had uh, we had our first session and she mentioned um, or I told her my story briefly. And she goes the next day. She, she's like, what? I found this guy on the news. Um, he has a very similar story to you. Um, do you want to try to connect with him? So I said, yeah, sure. Um, let me, let me watch him or whatever. So I watched whatever it was, the podcast or the interview with the news. And I was like, man, that's, you're right. That's pretty bang on with, um, how we kind of traveled through our journeys. Um, so yeah, that's, and I remember you were, um, you were walking into the dentist at the time. You're like, I'm going to get my teeth fixed, man. I'll, we'll talk, uh, a little later or whatever. I was like in my head, I'm thinking, man, I want to get my teeth fixed from all the damage. And, um, 
so yeah, that's when we first talked. Um, so yeah, here we are t- about two years later. And um, so yeah, a little bit about what's the deal, Stacy. Um, I grew up in a town, a town called Gunawage, which is right outside Montreal, ten minute drive, um, I guess, south of Montreal. Um, I came from. Uh, my parents were separated at a young age. My mom basically was a single mom who raised me up until we were probably alone up until maybe seven or eight years old. Then my two brothers came along. Um, my dad was never, re- he was there in my life, but he was an alcoholic um, throughout my entire life. Um, I can remember maybe one year where he had sobriety. We had a one year cake for him. I was maybe eight, nine years old. Um, but yeah, he was um, he was non-existent pretty much. So that fatherly figure and mentor was never there. Um, I didn't have much guidance in that aspect. Um, as I grew older, I kind of used that as almost fuel. I would always remember um, when I would get an argument from my dad or he wouldn't show up or um, I would always say, I'm using this, I'm going to NHL, I'm, I don't need him or, you know, stuff like that to fill in your mind to kind of get you through. So the guidance aspect wasn't there. My mom did everything she can to raise me. Um, I remember we would go to games all the time. Uh, she would bring me. Um, so there's, yeah, there was a lot of that where I would get in rides with other parents and, and kind of just, it was an unstable upbringing in a sense. So that's, I guess that was my first experience to, to addiction and that kind of life. Um, and that's where I, I realized going through recovery that um, a lot of my, I would lie a lot. I would lie for him. I would, I would want to, I guess I was so embarrassed. Right. So I would, I would lie about everything, who my dad was, what he did, uh, where he was, how come he wasn't at the game. Um, so I'm learning that as I grew older through addiction and my lying, all that lying took place. It, it was from a young age. And, um, and that's, um, as I recovered, there's so much that I'm learning about, you know, as a child, but, um, so, um, as a youngster, I had zero belief, zero self-confidence. I remember I would always tell people I'm going to the NHL one day. I want to play a pro, whatever. Um, and I would always hear, they would always say, um, no, us, you're too small, or there's a million kids trying to make it, you you probably won't make it. So I tell this a lot to people nowadays as I go through recovery. As a youngster, my mind was essentially programmed to doubt myself and to really not believe in myself. So as I made it to higher levels, I was always the best player on my team, which was which was ironic how I didn't have belief or confidence when I was always a top scorer. But meanwhile, I didn't, I didn't believe I was good to make the NHL became like such an impossible dream for me where it, it never would make sense to me. It was such a long shot where when I got to college, that was my NHL essentially, you know, it was like, wow, I made it here. There's now there's, you know, I, I don't have to go elsewhere. I made my, there's no way I'm making the NHL. So this is my top league. So um, that's a little bit about my, uh, like how my mind was programmed 
to have no confidence and um it'll it'll all come together a little more as we go on here tonight but um so yeah i played my minor hockey in Gunawage. i played lacrosse all kind of sports um then when i was 14 15 years old i was um i was recruited to play at a prep school out in saskatchewan which i know you had a lot of guests uh, from notre dame um and yeah i moved out there at 14 years old we didn't know nothing about it um i had this advisor phil cavalier who was essentially representing me and, and giving me guidance of different hockey avenues um and he he kind of you know facilitated my my enrollment at notre dame um so my first year i remember obviously coming from the um, my family and my community it was it was something that players didn't really we weren't really exposed and provided that kind of uh, those kind of avenues growing up prep school, junior hockey. I mean, we had a few guys go Quebec major route, but it was really, um, I kind of, I guess acted as almost like a Patriot in that, in that sense where I was one of the first to go to prep schools and college route. So it was really, it was a really, um, none of us understood what, what it meant to, to now be at that level and to get recruited and all that. So um, my midget year, I played midget. My first year there, midget double A, I was cut from the midget triple A team. Um, I think I was like 5'7", 135 pounds my first year midget. Um, that year I played midget double A. I had a good season. I was called up to the triple A's. Uh, the following year was, I would say, my big stepping stone in, in my hockey journey. My midget triple A year, uh, I would finish third in the league in scoring. And that year, Saskatchewan Midget Triple A League was the top in Canada. Um, I'm not sure how it is. They're, they're always contending for the TELUS Cup. But yeah, so that after that season, um, when when NCAA schools were were able to, to reach out to you, when you're in grade 11, there was some kind of rule where they can't speak to you right away. Or um, By this time, Brady, mind you, I already had my mind set on on uh, going college route, I I didn't want any major junior. I didn't want to go that avenue. You, uh, you were drafted though. You were drafted to the queue. Yeah, I was drafted to Drummondville. Um, yeah. But despite that, I told them before that I have no intention. I remember uh, Drummondville, the coach and GM. Um, the coach at the time was uh, Guy Boucher. He coached NHL a few places, and he took my mom and my stepdad out to to dinner. And um, we're sitting there having supper, him and the GM, and they were, um, I remember they were promised, they would say, okay, you come in next year, you'll play with Derek Rossard, Guillaume Tundras. I guess, you know, they're selling their program. And, um, you know, I remember leaving and I'm thinking, do I want to go there? Do I? But the whole time I, I wanted to play college hockey, but um, yeah, it was, uh the following year, I ended up getting drafted again to St. John's, Newfoundland. It was uh, St. John's Fog Devils, I think they were called. It was uh, Drummondville ended up releasing me, and I guess I got picked up in the expansion draft. But, yeah, uh, Major Junior wasn't the route I, I guess I wanted to go. And so once I got to Notre Dame, it, once you're there, it's essentially a hockey factory, as you know, Brady. And there's um, – everybody has their – we all have like one goal and one dream is to get a college a scholarship there. So um, after my grade 11 year, the, the mail list, the programs start piling in. I would have mail every second day. I would go to, it was, it was like a game after a while. We would, all the students, we, 
we get to lunch. So the way it worked was in the cafeteria, there was, um, there was a mailing list when you walk in and if your name was on there and you had a package, you would go to the next house over to get your mailing list. So yeah, after the season, I started getting like two to three packages every second day. We would have all bunch of friends. We'd run to see what schools now sending, sending, uh, me the interest they, they would send you big like books and stuff about their school and offer you fly downs and all that so um that was incredible and and mind you again i i don't know anything of i have no idea like I, they're sending me this stuff i don't now we're sending emails this that and you're allowed to to book five fly downs five official visits and this is all what i'm learning on the fly so um now I talked a little bit about not having much guidance growing up and going into Notre Dame. So I'll give you, I'll put into a little context of what that looks like. Um, so like I said, we're about five official visits. I remember the first three schools that contact me, I'm like, okay, hey, I'm going to go. How come visit? It was Clarkson, Colorado college and university of Denver. And um, I remember it was like October, second week of October. Now they're re of the following season, my grade 12 year. Now I can go to visits. So we're talking all summer with them, whatever. Scheduled a visit in October. I scheduled it with Clarkson University. Um, talking to Colorado College in Denver at the same time. And so I land in Clarkson. I, I get to the airport and um, or Clarkson's in Potsdam. So I flew into Montreal. My family picked me up and we drive to Clarkson. On the way to Clarkson, my phone rings and it's Norm Bazin. Norm Bazin was, uh, was a recruiter at Colorado College. And before my visit to Clarkson, uh, I was talking with them, like I said, and what I did, Brady, was I booked two fly downs on the same weekend. So I booked Clarkson and Colorado College on the same weekend, just, I guess, out of excitement, not really knowing, not being prepared, organized. So, yeah, Norm calls me. He goes, uh, I'm at the airport by the baggage terminal. I don't see you. Um, did you make your flight? Everything Okay. Norm, I'm in Clarkson right now. What do you mean? He goes, well, what's you booked? You're supposed to be with us this weekend. I said, oh, my God. So that was like an eye-opening experience for me in the recruiting process. Um, Norm was very good about it, though. We, we, we kept contact. Um, they didn't really um, – they didn't throw me right to the wolves right away, but I, there wasn't much interest after that. I know that. But, um, yeah, so um, visits. I, I end up going to Clarkson. Um, Maine, Vermont, St. Cloud, and uh, I can't remember the other one. But anyways, um, so I initially committed to Universe, uh, Minnesota Duluth. I committed there during my grade 12 year. Um, I loved it, everything about it. That's where I truly want to go. Um, I got rookie of the year that year in the SJHL, and um, all other schools kind of start kind of talking to me again. And so... I don't know why or what happened. I know I had a conversation with my junior coach at the time and he mentioned something along the lines of, um, you know, Minnesota Duluth might be getting scared or get nervous that other schools are going to scoop you up. So um, they want you to go now or whatever. So I said, well, I'm not going now. I don't want to go this year. Um, so I decommitted from you uh, from Duluth and um, that's where I ended up at, Vermont. Uh, it was a lot closer to home, which is the main reason. It was only two hours from my hometown now. I've been away for the last four years where nobody was able to experience with me. So I thought coming closer to town or closer to my hometown would um, 
would, you know, we'll share the experience with everybody. So that, that was the main reason I came or I decommitted and went to UVM, um, which I, I don't regret. It was, it was, we had the funnest times, man. Uh, my friends, my family, we were, we packed the gut on, on those weekend nights. So, um, I mean, yeah, so grade 11, that all had grade 12 year. I played it at Notre Dame again. Um, and then the following season, I, I, after high school, I didn't go to college right away. Like I said, I want to stay one more year. So I played in Notre Dame half the year. I was traded to Estevan Bruins for the later half of the year, finished the season there. And uh, that's when I would start the following fall. I would go into my freshman year at UVM. Now, um, UVM, when... Well, can, can I interrupt for one sec? I just want get, to get some context for, for here. So you're away in Notre Dame. You're 14. You move away from home. What, you know... In, in you know short term, like was that was that tough for you? And also, my other question is, what about like drinking and like drugs at this point? Was that ever a part of your story throughout junior hockey prior to UVM? Like, where were you at with your mental health during junior and like the drinking and kind of the culture of hockey? Like, just give us a little rundown on what that looked like before we get into your college days. Yeah. All right. Good question. Yeah. Um, so. I would say like, so I got to Saskatchewan in grade 10. Um, at that point, I've, I never have gotten drunk yet. So I was, I was a, basically a late starter to drink in, in accordance to the people around me. You know, we were with the culture I was around. My friends were drinking at 12, 13 years old, getting drunk, getting high. Um, I didn't, I always had that, that mindset, which is again, ironic. I had a strong mindset of how, where I want to go. But deep down, I didn't truly believe I can be there and get there. And I didn't think I was good enough, but I still, I still had that mindset of where I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do drugs um, because I want to play professionally. So yeah, I didn't start, I didn't drink or smoke at all before I even went away. Um, I got to Notre Dame grade 10, didn't drink, didn't, didn't smoke. Um, when I came back after grade 10 is when I got high on weed for the first time in the summer. Um, but I still didn't drink. I came back to Notre Dame grade 11 year. I went visit a friend on Thanksgiving in Saskatchewan and I had my first beer in, uh, on the farm in Saskatchewan. I, um, well, it was, a a Pilsner, a green pill, you know, that drink out West. Oh yeah. Fuck. With the crazy cans. Like, fuck yeah. So, uh, so I had that beer, but you know, it, it tastes horrible. I remember trying beer as a youngster. My dad would give me a zip or my cousins, we would take zips at parties or whatever. And it always tastes like garbage. And when I had my first beer there in Saskatchewan, it same thing. It didn't taste good. It tastes like shit, but, um, I got a little buzz off it and yeah, that's where, uh, kind of, we got drunk that weekend. That was the first time getting drunk. And, um, we went back to school and kind of my drinking days, I guess they weren't extreme out there, but in prep school, we would drink when we, because you can't drink at the school, right? You have to, it's where you sneak it in or you get kicked out. So the only time I would kind of booze was when I would go to Thanksgiving or Christmas break or spring break. And then um, once grade 12 and my junior days hit, I was, uh, I was drinking, partying like like the other players and teammates would. I would go home at the same time as them. Nothing, 
nothing like addict mind yet tendencies not yet but um i would smoke weed more than i would drink at that time and um so yeah we i uh it wasn't really once i left junior and i got to back to gunawaga going into my freshman year i partied hard i i got myself and when i got to notre dame and in, in grade 10 and grade 11 i i met my roommate blake gallagher from nova scotia and he he brought with him to notre dame he was uh training partners with brad marchand Sidney crosby they had this training this trainer named andy o'brien who would go on now i think he's with the penguins um so Blake brought all these workouts and new exercises to Saskatchewan that I have, I never saw. I was, I never did. And yeah, this guy got me into some incredible shape, which, uh, which got, I got in such good shape, Brady, that, um, I remember towards the end of my grade 12 year, uh, the college coach was like, man, you got to lose a little bit of weight. Like you're, I jacked up way too much. So I remember losing a bit of weight that summer and but i just partied because in my mind i was like fuck i'm in such good shape i i remember hearing you say this a little bit going into your contract or when you signed your contract going into tampa's camp you didn't fucking train at all you know and and that was the same as me i i thought in my head okay i'm just some top player in sjhl you know one of the biggest recruits i had 20 full scholarship offers coming out of junior um i don't really have to train other guys from bchl and sj are ripping it up right now I don't really, I don't think I have to. So that was my mindset going into the freshman year. And boy, was that a eye awakener because I got to UVM and man, the guys there, the way they trained was, it was, I was an alien. I was such an outcast when I got there. I couldn't finish a quarter of the first workout that, that we were doing. I was on the side and, you know, God, you can see guys looking at me like, fuck is this is an athlete, whatever, but I mean, I, I figured it out that freshman year. It was um, it was an eye opener for for me on and off the ice. It was a little bit of a culture shock coming from Wilcox, Saskatchewan, which is I think we were 200 students to a school at UVM where you have 30,000. We had two. I had 200 students in some of my classes. So I mean, it, that in that sense, it was a little bit different. The schoolwork was harder. Um, my SAT score, I wasn't even. I didn't even have the grades to get in UVM. The coaches had to pull like a, a backdoor maneuver and, and say that English was my second language in order to get through, like, uh, you know, to get enrolled. So, um, so I got to UVM and I was way behind in schoolwork. My first math test, I got caught cheating. The way this one went is, so in college, in, in prep school, we never had two versions of the test. So I got to college when my first math test, I have no idea what all this is on my, on my sheet. So, um, I copied the guy next to me. I copied the whole test. We come in the next day. The teacher goes, uh, Mr. Stacy, can you please meet me after class? So, okay. Uh, I meet him after class. He goes, well, you got a hundred percent on your test. I said, really? Wow. He goes, yeah, but it was for the B version, not your version. I said, fuck. Okay. So I got busted cheating. I was suspended my first two games of my college career. Um, so it wasn't off to a great start. Um, I figured out the schooling that year. I was able to pass with decent grades, um, on the ice. It was, um, I was able to play. I had the hockey IQ, I had the skills. I, I was good enough. I didn't have any cardio. I wasn't able to, my shifts were maybe 20 seconds and I was gassed. 
Um, so there was a lot of extra biking and a lot of extra workouts my freshman year just to um, get to the level of conditioning where I can compete at that level. So, um, yeah, so I guess uh, now freshman year finishes, sophomore year, and this is where the trajectory of my life would absolutely change, Brady. Um, so that freshman year, we we lost our strength coach to the Chicago Blackhawks. Paul Goodman, which I believe is still the coach in Chicago. Um, so now the school was forced to find a new strength coach. So that summer when Paul left, uh, we stayed as a, a lot of us as a team on campus. We were training, we were, you know, sticking together there. A lot of guys stay in skate. Um, so yeah, we were training good as a group. And I remember our head coach coming in saying, okay, we're almost finding our next strength coach, whatever. Um, keep training guys, be patient, whatever. So anyways, so a couple weeks passed by and he calls us in, or I think it was right at the beginning before school would start. Um, I remember this, like this was yesterday, but he comes in, he goes, well, boys, we found our man. This guy's a ball of energy. He's a meat and potatoes kind of guy. You guys are going to love him. He's going to help us get better, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, in came this new mentor and coach, Justin Goulet. Now, Coach Goulet's arrival would set in motion a series of extraordinary events and um, a culture, a very toxic culture would now be brewing essentially at UVM. Um, so behind closed doors, there was, there was all sorts of mysterious relationships that that would quickly start to cultivate with this coach and, and some of us student athletes. And I was one of them. Um, my close friend, a good teammate uh, of mine at the time was also um, heavily affected by this guy. Um, so what essentially happened, Brady was the school hired a man who was in full blown Oxycontin crisis and they didn't know it. Um, looking back now, I, I say this to a few people that I've in my, in my circle that, um, that I share a little bit with, um, going into tonight, there's probably on one hand I can count who've heard my whole story. So, um, there's, um, yeah, the school hired him. They didn't even know it. And, um, so what happened was somewhere around, Oh, what I was going to say actually was looking back now, being through addiction um, is I don't, what happened was this guy in around the first middle of first semesters, he would introduce my teammate and I to Oxycontin eighties. You know what the eighties are and how much of big dogs, those fucking things are. Um, that's where I started too, man. Most people start with Percocets. I was straight to the eighties as well. And that's me. Yeah. You shared the story with me. So I'm, I'm just reliving it again through you. And I appreciate you sharing this with everybody because it's, this is, uh, just while we're listening, I, I hate to take any time out of your story, but you know, you know, this, you're not alone here. Like this was not just something that had maybe in this direct fashion, but there's multiple stories where people were introduced to painkillers by a trainer or by somebody and, very luckily you and I are still here a lot alive to tell our stories, but so many people are not. So let's just keep that in mind when we're listening, when we're watching this, because this story happened multiple, multiple times just in the hockey community alone. And this is how quickly your life can shift 
and sometimes you don't even know the choices you're making. So Waz, thank you and, and please keep going. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, you're bang on, Braves. That's um usually people started on the perks, fives, Vikings, whatever. Uh but we were you know, straight to the Oxy eighties and and they're they were at the time they were the pit bull of all pills. So um so yeah, once that happened from the moment he introduced us to that, I mean another thing that I remember like yesterday he pulls out this screw and and with those 80s you and I both know that you can't just crush them you had to grain them or whatever grade them with a screw or a hose clamp and um to get it real fine where you get optimal euphoria right and so that's from that moment on I was in love with the with this feeling and my my new major and my new sport at UVM became oxycotton 80s from that moment on it was, uh, I found my things, I found myself just wanting these pills with everything I did, literally everything I did. Um, that, that first time was the first time that you did it. Do you mind taking, I, I hate to make you relive it or anything, but like, oh, how, did, no. how did that come about? Because I think there's something to be said about that. Like we all, you know, whoever's been in that situation, there's always, you know, whether it ends in a 10 year addiction or, or whatever, there's always that starting point and how does somebody make that first choice sometimes it's through a doctor sometimes it's through peer pressure sometimes it's somebody it's somebody you look up to or trust you know like what did that day look like for you and and how was it that you were kind of given these pills and like how did you know I, I believe if I remember correctly the guy kind of took advantage of certain situations and like all that kind of stuff well yeah so what happened was going going into that sophomore season um, before after after my freshman season in the in the springtime I had shoulder surgery so my shoulder surgery um, and I was I think it was in uh, maybe May yeah it was in May so I was in recovery and rehab with my shoulder surgery for about a month or two and in came this coach so. Um, him and I had to do different type of workouts because I was in surgery or I was in a sling and we, we kind of had to uh, compromise with a lot of exercise and whatnot. And during this time we developed a bizarre relation. I guess I still to this day don't know how it, the first time happened, that interaction. Or if, um, but what I do know is how I got introduced to so Oxy 80s were from him and, um, yeah, it was just a bizarre relationship that we that would start to cultivate between us and my teammate who um who was affected that I talked about earlier and what what happened with this guy he would come to our apartment he would you know he we would go to his apartment he would be borrowing money from us his his athletes borrowing money from broke college students you know looking back now knowing what addiction is he was just in a bad crisis of his own i mean and and in getting that job, I can see that, you know, when you're in addiction like that, your, your only focus is money. So he, he kind of loopholed his way through a hiring process and got a job. Um, it's essentially on the school who didn't do their due diligence in the hiring process who hired a man who was in full blown addiction. So, you know, that's another, that's a whole another avenue. I, w I have so many questions. I, I would like to ask UVM, uh, you know, in regards to this as my recovery road, unfolds and and you know becomes my mind becomes clearer and i my knowledge becomes more executed i execute my knowledge of what i learned and and all this i i do want to 
you know, um, communicate and network with them and see and have them actually understand and know why the real reason I quit that day. So the day I quit Brady, uh, I remember the Which day. Was what season was, what season did you end up leaving the oh, team? Oh okay, yeah. Let's go in order. Sorry. So, um, so where was I? Um, uh, yeah. Year, yeah, I believe uh, yeah. So when my when my new major, like I said, became uh, oxycotton, uh, that's when you know any hopes to thrive as an athlete or a student were out the window. Um, my daily, every time I woke up, the first thing you think is, you know what, you got, you know, you got to find your fix before anything. So. Um, I was able to still, during my sophomore and junior year, I was able to still function and be able to kind of hide it and and live as an opioid addict and still play at a D1 level. Um, I was able to just get by, you know. I was, I mean, there's looking back at it now, I don't know how nobody knew. Um, even the atmosphere and the environment in the weight room at the arena with this coach, um, there's absolutely no way that – or. I don't know how this how this went on unchecked for so long, um, but yeah. So I mean, uh, I was able to function uh, up until halfway through my senior season, and that's when things just fell apart. And I was, you know, pulling at strings now just to just to survive. And and um, so a lot of times at UVM you have like, or at all colleges or hockey teams you have like teddy bear tosses, or you go visit elders at hospitals, children's hospitals, that sort of thing. So one day we had a, a teddy bear. We had to bring teddy bears to, to an old folks home. And I didn't, I slept through it. I didn't, I missed it. Um, using pills all the night before. And, you know, you and I both know how you can't wake up when you're doing pills. So that previous night I was partying, whatever, and I didn't wake up for it. And I remember my captain, Kevin Miller at the time, he comes downstairs, maybe 10, 11 in the morning pounding on my door he goes yo coach wants to see you you missed you missed the function again I missed a bike ride maybe a previous week um when you're playing at that level those little functions to a lot of the viewers it might sound like oh it's just a teddy bear toss it's just a bike ride no you're held accountable with I mean once you get to this level you start missing things you're late they hold you accountable and rightfully so I mean you we should be so yeah I couldn't wake up that morning he comes in says coach wants to see you and the first I wake up and I'm like, fuck, I'm in, well, I don't give a fuck what my cat, what Miller is saying, or that coach wants to see me. I'm just, I just need a pill right now. So he goes upstairs, whatever. I start texting around. I've, I couldn't go see coach until I got high, by the way. So, um, which actually didn't because I want, I was, I remember actually Kevin, we would, um, he goes, coach wants to see you. So I, I didn't get high right away. I went right to see him because this is why I quit. I went right to see him. I, we had this meeting. He was like, "Was you're starting to miss things. You're, you know, you're not giving us all blah, blah, blah. However it went. Um, and that weekend I had a busload of, of, uh, community members come and watch me a bunch of kids from the local YMCA, YMCA here. We, um, they organized a trip to come watch me play and, he goes, we're going to suspend you for tomorrow night. Um, I said, coach, I have a big bus coming, uh, come and watch me. Uh, he goes, well, you missed, we're suspending you. If tell them or whatever, I don't know. So I said, you know what, coach, don't worry. I quit. And I got up and I walked out. 
all that was on my mind that day, Brady, or in that meeting was I want a pill. I don't want to be sitting in this meeting. I, I'm withdrawing right now. I have to go get high. And I quit hockey that day because I was essentially withdrawing and I want to go get high. So I remember walking out. Of, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. I mean, I just, I just have to ask you, because like for me, I'm listening too. When you say you had to go get high at this point, was it still about getting higher? Was it more about just getting better because you well, were helping? Yeah, feeling better, that. right? So yeah. people that are watching or listening to this, like if you've never been addicted to opiates, I don't, we don't expect you to understand what it feels like, but there is nothing in this world that is more terrifying and more painful that I've experienced. Nothing even comes close to the feeling of withdrawal from opiates. It is <clears throat> the most horrific whirlwind of of pain both physically and emotionally and you can't think straight and if you don't have that pill or the heroin or the fentanyl or whatever it is that you're addicted to at the time because really they're all kind of the same to me they are same class of drugs if you don't have it it's not just about getting high and trying to like oh i want to get high i want to party i think a lot of people might have that misconception it is literally hey i need to take this pill or i need to shoot this fentanyl or whatever it may be just so that i'm not nauseous and have diarrhea and my bones don't ache and i don't have the most crazy anxiety you could ever imagine so just to put it into perspective and if you've never seen dope sick on i think it's on disney or wherever it is now very, very good documentary, docu-series, true stories about sort of the oxy crisis and where it took a lot of people. So I just wanted to interject there because I, I know you what you meant by it, but really you were sitting there feeling so shitty, being like, I don't care what this guy's saying. I don't care what happens to me. I just don't want to feel like this anymore because your body is in such a state of fight or flight. You just can't even explain it. Like you just have to feel better now and you're not thinking. So that is a lot to unpack for you um, with, with that decision that you made. But again, in that moment, that's all you're thinking. So sorry to, to interject there. I just wanted to kind of put things into perspective in case anybody has never even heard of withdrawal, which I think most people on this show, if you're listening, have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you hear a lot of people say it's like the flu times 10 and that's, I, I hear it so much, but there's, I don't say that. It's just something that, you're like you say fight or flight mode where there's the consequences behind whatever action you're about to take to get that fix you don't think of it's nothing else matters and i'll i'll give you a little a little backstory something in relation to that is when i experienced my first overdose i was it happened in mississauga i had a friend of mine's truck for well i'll get into that part later but what uh what happened was i overdosed and I woke up from it. There was people all over. I had no idea what was going on. Um, and then it kind of started coming to me a bit. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in Toronto. I'm on the ground. I realize now that, okay, I, I overdosed. I, but so what happened was um, I got up. I got back in the truck, and I drove away. And maybe like 15 minutes later, in my mind, I'm like, fuck, I want another toke. I'm like, I just, I just OD'd. I didn't even cry. It didn't matter that I just, I was dead. 15 minutes later, all that was on my mind was I want another puff. So I smoked another piece of fat and all that time. I was driving even, that didn't matter. That I didn't even pull over. I was driving yeah. as I'm doing it going minutes after I just overdosed. So that's, that's the power of what this stuff does to you to give a little bit of, 
context to the audience here tonight, but um, there's so many other stories that I, I can share in about that. But um, so, yeah, so senior year, uh, halfway through, everything fell, fell out of control. I wasn't able to function anymore, really, and hide it. So after that meeting with coach, I walked out. I went back to my apartment, of course, got my fix, felt okay. And once I started feeling okay and realizing like, okay, I just fucking quit. What did I do? Um, so I just basically, now I had no more responsibility. It was too late to go back and ask to get back on the team. It was already out in, in the press or whatnot. I remember the head coach, Coach Snedden, going in the newspapers saying, um, if, if there's anything I hate more in the world, it's quitters. We don't want him. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't need to be here along those lines. And, um, you know, that's um, the the chance of going and, and getting my spot back was just, it wasn't going to happen. So I just turned into full party mode. And what I did was I called my aunt. She came and got me. I packed a bag and I just, I MIA, I left UVM. I never went back. I still have not been back to this day. Or I was, I was there once for a few hours. I was on a flight layover, but um, yeah, my auntie came, picked me up, packed a few bags. By this point, I was maybe three months behind on my rent, on hydro bills, on uh, all that sort of school. Was I was way behind in school, failing all the classes that semester. Um, so I, she came, I packed a little bag, and I came back to Gunawage, and I I left my roommates with all all the bills that I owed, all my shit, I didn't come clean out. Um, to this day, that's on my, definitely on my priority list is to fix those relationships with my roommates and a lot of ex-teammates that I just walked out on. Um, you know, Brady, that's, that's something that gets me the most. I still have dreams to this day. Just last week, I had a dream that I was getting on the bus after one of our hockey games and I was going to sit with one of our captain or one of our, in the back there. And as soon as I got on the bus, nobody wanted me to sit with them. Nobody let me, nobody was talking to me in the dream. Um, and I have these dreams frequently where, where all my past teammates want nothing to do with me or they're ghosting me. Um, I'll get on the bus. The coaches are threatening to cut me as I'm getting on the bus. I get these like bad traumatic dreams from, from those days still. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what happened when I got back home. Um, it just became an all, but the problem was when I got here, I didn't know where Oxycontin was when I got to my hometown. I didn't know where to find it. I, and all I knew is I needed to get this shit in my body. Like now, like in the next day or two, cause I remember bringing a few pills with me and then once those were out. So what happened was I met, you know, you end up networking, meeting people. And when you're around those type of people and I found dealers here. And, um, it wasn't Oxycontin when I was here. There was a pill called Subadol and Dilaudid, which Subadol has Oxycodone in it, not Oxycontin, it's Oxycodone. But those are the two pills that I found when I got back here in my hometown. And that pill addiction would, would pan out for the next, whatever it was, 10 years now. During that 10 years, I quit for maybe seven months opioids, but I was still doing cocaine. I was still drinking hard I was you know it, so it was only like a, a small small amount of time I had in that 10 years so um fast forward now to I guess uh oh 2019 is when I was when I first got to in my first treatment center so from 2011 when I left UVM 
2019 was just a a shit show oh. of addiction. How quickly did it take you to go from the pills to heroin to fentanyl? Okay, yeah, I'm getting there. So what happened sorry, was I get, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I get to rehab in 2019. Um before I got to rehab, I was somewhat homeless in my hometown. I was living at a cousin's house. Um, I was like kind of, he had, he kind of kicked me out for a bit. So I slept under his house. There's a cellar with rocks in it. Like uh, I was sleeping there. I was just jumping around, had nowhere to go. So um, yeah, that was like my first kind of really rock bottom. And so I reached out and, and I asked for help to get me in treatment. And um, one of my childhood friends, his dad was, um kind of like a father figure to me growing up he would bring me to a lot of hockey games him and him and uh or me and his son were on the same team growing up a lot so I was so grateful to get he got me into a recovery out in um kind of by you in Port Hope Ontario right before Toronto it's called CCFA so I got to treatment there um man a funny story about that treatment was on the way to treatment he was driving with with one of my other friends in the passenger seat who, who were driving me there, we get pulled over on the 401. We get our truck taken away right on the side of the highway. So in my mind, Brady, I'm thinking, Oh, I don't got to go to rehab. You know, we don't have a truck. We don't have to get there. Now we're two hours away from the rehab center still. So he said, we call a cab and we got a cab from a two hour ride to get me to treatment. Um, I, I get there. It was obviously a, I wasn't like the second time I wasn't clean for two weeks going in. I was straight off the streets basically. And it was a rough few weeks, uh, first few weeks there. So in that treatment center, I met a guy named Jordan who, who was from Toronto area. And, um, and yeah, so I would, I would leave treatment in 2019. I would stay clean for about a month and then I relapsed and that relapse went on until, um, 2021 so um in 2021 or when i got out of my first treatment center the relapse happened i was partying again and uh it came to a point where i start working i didn't say this earlier but during my senior season at uvm in the summer because these pills in vermont i don't know out by you brady but they were 80 bucks a pop to buy your doctor your 80s so as a yeah, college, they were, four, they were 35 or 40 when I was doing them. They weren't cheap, but that's, that's double. Yeah. So, and, uh, so as a broke college student, you got to imagine how are you going to afford this habit? Now I'm doing whatever two eighties a day and, um, yeah, you don't have money as a college student. So what I did was I had a friend who was living in, uh, in New York. I'm not sure if you know that area. It's, it's known for a lot of, black market smuggling and all that. So yeah, I knew he had a little operation going out there and uh, I gave him a call. He was, he was another childhood friend of mine who had moved out that way and he had some business going on out there. So um, I called him, I said, Oh, I, I need some money. Can you help me out? Um, and this is where all like the, the asking for money started at around my sophomore, junior year, we calling home random people asking for money and, and, you know, so, um, I didn't want to keep asking. So I, I called him. Yeah. He was one of my best friends. So he was like, yeah, come on down. Uh, you know what I do, what I'm all about. Oh, we can do it. So what it is, is I would, I would leave campus 
maybe around whatever, 11 at night, I would drive the two hours to Akwesasne, get on the boat, smuggle tobacco, weed, or people across the Canada, U.S., get my money, jump back in the car, fly back to UVM so I can make a workout in the morning or make practice. And I would do that maybe four or five times over that summer to, you know, to feed my habit. So, um, I mean, yeah, I was an NCAA athlete. Um, and in between workouts, I'd be driving two hours to go smuggle to feed my habit. That's, that's the extent where I got to my senior year. So, um, so yeah, I've, once I, um, once I got out of rehab that 2019 with the guy, Jordan, I told you, I met, um, by this time I was, I start working for this childhood friend again. So the one in senior year who I went smuggle with this fast forward, maybe 10 years later, whatever it is. Um, he has some work where I can drive up and down to Toronto, right past Toronto. I was delivering bags of money this time. So during my drive there one time, I didn't have pills. And I remember this Jordan guy who from rehab. So I Facebooked him when I was in Toronto, like driving through, uh, I stopped for an hour, trying to get in touch with him. And I found him. And what happened was he had no idea what pills were, what oxy, he knew what oxys were, but they weren't around anymore. So he goes, I have this other stuff, fentanyl. He goes, it, it'll take your sickness away. Uh, you won't, you know, it's just, it's a strong opioid and just be careful, blah, blah, blah. So that was my introduction to fentanyl. So that was in 2000, that was in 2020 because, uh, June of 2020, I moved back out with this friend out by Toronto to work for him now, the same childhood friend who I went on the boat with. So I went and I worked for him. He, at this point, this friend had no idea the severity of my, of my addiction. He, he was just kind of bringing me out to help me out, to give me work, to, you know, he knew I was a party or whatever, but I don't think he had any idea how deep I was in opioids. Definitely not fentanyl yet. So I was working for him for a few weeks, um, staying in his camper. And one day I was out of fentanyl now, and I had to make a trip to, to Toronto to see Jordan to re-up. So I convinced my friend, and this is... We, the night before, or when I was going to meet Jordan, I asked my friend, okay, I got to go see a girl. Um, I wasn't telling him I'm going to Toronto. He goes, okay, stay on the reserve. The truck is full of cigarettes. You know, you can't, you can't go off the reserve. I'm not sure what you know about like reserves and cigarettes and all that, but yeah. it's like kind of, uh, you know, outside police forces don't really have jurisdiction here. So essentially go stay on the reserve, whatever. So what do I do? 15 seconds later, I'm off the reserve on my way to Toronto and I call Jordan. Okay. Yeah, I'm on my way. I'll be there 45 minutes. So I get to his house. I pick him up and we go around the corner. We, we pick up this fentanyl and he was at the time he was, he goes, he talks to the dealer. He goes, can I get some up and, or can I get some hard and down? And I asked him, I was like, what the fuck is hard? He goes, it's crack. crack buddy. Yeah. And yeah, I go, well, Okay. So that was my first introduction to crack. I took a puff of crack with him and then, uh, we hit the fentanyl and after we hit the fentanyl boat at this dumb or a uh, pizza, pizza parking lot, we drove around the corner about two kilometers was where his house was. So I, I brought him home, parked in front of his house. And next thing you know, I wake up and that, and this was the first OD I was talking about. I wake up and there's people all around me 
And I'm like, what the fuck? And, and I didn't understand right away. I was trying to get up and my whole body was like sand. I had no, I couldn't move. And I was like, the per, the pe there's women crying in front of me. There's a guy screaming and he goes, you were just not breathing. They were giving you CPR. And I was like, well, then it hit me. I'm like, fuck, I just tried that fentanyl stuff. And I look around, I'm like, where's Jordan? Where's the truck? And I was so lost. I was like, fuck. And, and the people are yelling me, stay down, stay down. And I hear sirens now in the back. And I'm like, fuck, the cops are coming. Oh, you know, you just get in a sense of panic. And I got up and I started just walking fast on the road, trying to evade the people who are watching me, whatever. I get around the corner and the cops and ambulance pass me. Two minutes later, they pull back up and they pull beside me and start questioning me. Um, say, guys, I'm fine. I, I just wasn't feeling well. You know, you're, you're lying. You're denying it. You're, you don't want to tell even the cops what you just did. So, um, so yeah, what happened was I, I walked, but they end up just leaving me saying, okay, if you're fine, go ahead, whatever. They deal with so many overdoses in Toronto, Vancouver, as you know, that, I mean, if someone's walking now on their own and their own strength, I'm, what are you going to do? You can't really bring them anywhere. So that's right. I walked around that neighborhood and I got, I went back to, I let the kind of the heat die down where I OD'd and I went back in front of that house where I dropped them off and I just knocked on the door and he opened the door and he pulled me in and he's like, what, what the fuck, man? I told you be careful. He's screaming in my face. He's like, you just overdosed. I was giving you CPR. Your lips were blue. He goes, the ambulance are coming. He goes, I just brought that truck full of your cigarettes. I parked it in the next driving way, way back there. I didn't want to get you in trouble, blah, blah, blah. I was like, holy fuck. I didn't know what the hell was going on. So, yeah, we stayed in his apartment for about an hour. Let anything die down. If there was cops, what happened was, and what we do in that hour, Brady, we're hitting fentanyl like it was no, there was no tomorrow, you know. So I get back in that truck, and that's when I drove home back to my buddy's house to the camper and, so a couple of days after that, he, that same friend would find fentanyl in that camper I was sleeping in. Um, they found the, I guess they were suspicion. They seen, I guess, how I was acting, you know, my eyes that previous day. And there was just clues that I was using. So they kind of did their own little investigation, found and found my fentanyl, which I was absolutely guilty of. And I try to lie about it. I try to deny it. There was... Man, where our brains are during these times are crazy, Brady, because there was all chalk in his driveway. This is where my mind was. There was all pink, brown, or uh, purple, blue chalk from his kids. And um, I was trying to tell them, no, it's a piece of chalk that was stuck on my shoe that ended up in the camper, you know? So um, whatever, that, uh, what ended up happening was my friend was like, okay, well, you got to leave. I can't, I can't have that around, rightfully so. To this day, I understand it. I've... Um, I support his decision. Um, and that's how I ended up in Toronto. Now I got a ride to the train station and I took a ride to the, I got in the Brantford train station. I ended up in Toronto and now I'm in Toronto and my connecting train back to Montreal is in about an hour and I have no fentanyl. I have no, nothing to help me with the withdrawals that I'm about to ex experience. So I just, I said, fuck it. I'm not getting on that train. I called my friend Jordan or the friend Jordan from rehab. And at the time he was staying in Scarborough in a homeless, ho homeless hotel. I, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, they were putting homeless people in hotels. Yeah. So he, he had a hotel room and uh, he's like, listen, I'm in Scarborough. This is the Metro, how to get here. I ended up going meet him at that hotel that night. Um, 
And that first night is when uh, I stayed in his hotel room that night. We end up the next morning, uh, we were arguing over obviously fentanyl not sharing and, and that type of thing. Um, so he goes, you can't stay in my hotel room no more. I said, well, fuck you then, whatever. And from Scarborough, I took the Metro back to downtown Toronto. Now, this was my first night sleeping. It would be my first night sleeping outside. Um, that first night, I I walked around the city for probably 10 hours. Just I didn't know where. I didn't know nothing about Toronto. Last time I was there was probably as a nine-year-old playing in a hockey tournament. So I just kind of walked around. I was I was definitely messed up on fentanyl as I'm walking around, just trying to find more and ways and trying to talk to people and just learn who to network with. So, because in my mind, I already knew, Brady, that I wasn't going home right away unless I found a substantial amount of fentanyl to bring with me that would hold me over. So, that's how my little um, month and two weeks of my Toronto homeless stint uh, started. So, that first night, I ended up, um, do you know in downtown Toronto where it says the letters Toronto, T-O-R-O-N-T, and then behind it, there's a big open area? So... I don't know if that's a U of T or whatever, but there's big letters in, in shiny green and blue lighting. So behind that, you walk through that area and there's a stairwell that goes downstairs. And I slept on the bottom of that stairwell that night. Um, I woke up that day or, and I met, uh, I met another native guy around, um, around maybe 9 a.m. or something. So him and I were, or he had a connect. It turned out he he brought me to a place called Moss Park, which I found out later, and I'm learning as I watch a lot of gang documentaries and whatnot. Uh, Moss Park is the most dangerous um, ghetto in downtown Toronto, and that's where I was picking up every day and uh, for that month. But anyways, yeah, that following night, I, I ended up sleeping in a tent. I found a group of people sleeping in tents, um, and that went on for about seven nights of sleeping outside. And I came to a point where I fuck, uh, I can't sleep outside. Someone mentioned something about shelters. Um, so I went to, um, I don't know if it's Salvation Army or one of those places to ask them. That's where they disperse you into shelters. So I got there. I said, I need a place to sleep. I'm homeless. Uh, I'm sleeping outside, blah, blah, blah. And so the girl goes, come back in an hour. So I came back and she goes, we found one for you on the other side of the city. You have one hour to get there. Otherwise, your bed will be gone. So I managed to get there. I got to the shelter. And for those of you who don't know what a shelter is in a city, I mean, you think of it like, oh, you're going to a shelter. Uh, you got a bed, you got food, you're warm. That place, those places are fucking like hospitals combined with a prison. Um, I got in there and it was such a, I thought I was in uh, Ecuador or Colombia the way it was. Um, my first night in the shelter, I go in, they make you shower right away. So I got there, they gave me a towel. I didn't shower, mind you, at this point for probably eight, nine days. And I get in the shower, I get out, I look to the side in the next shower and there's a guy laying there with a needle in his arm, blood coming out and is totally just like dead on the floor. And that was the beginning of my shelter experience where every day there was between eight to 15 overdoses in the bathroom. If, if you want to go take a piss or a shit, you had to wait until that guy wakes up from his overdose to take your shit. You know, it was, it was, it's crazy, the, the shelter life. Why, 
it's it was it's a big reason why a lot of people who are on the streets don't use the shelters like people are like well there's shelters you can go you can go here you can go there man i spent almost a year on the streets in vancouver i i slept in a shelter i think two nights out of that year because i because of exactly what you're talking about and for anybody that's watched or listened to this show you know we had an episode uh very sad ending uh, my friend kevin kerbison was in a shelter staying in a shelter we did a show he's un- he unfortunately passed away of an overdose Um, Not this Christmas, but the Christmas before. But he talked about that. You know, he talked about just his living conditions at at the point in time of his life. He's like, you know, there's these shelters, but they're not like people have no idea what you have to go through just to be there. You know, people steal your stuff. There's violence. There's, you know, it's it's a lot. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's eye opening for people. If you have never, you know, experienced it yourself. There's a lot more to it than just like Waz said, you know, a warm place to sleep, meals, the whole thing. Like there's a whole other set of bullshit that comes with it. Yeah. After a certain point, after being there for about a week or two, I kept my bed there, but I would only go back to the shelter to get my meals, like a lunch or a supper, uh, never breakfast. Of course, I don't, I wasn't waking up until one, two in the afternoon during those days. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, numerous times I overdosed on the toilet in that shelter. You know, people helping me come back. Uh, you mentioned a lot how many times you've been narcan I'm right there with you. My band, like, fucked over 10 times I, I've been narcan So once on a city bus, in down in the metro, downtown Montreal, like, so many places, man. And, it's, and yeah, like you say earlier, we're one of the lucky ones to share our story. And, and that's, you know, for the longest time, I had this, like, PTSD of, of putting myself out there and sharing this story. And um, obviously, I said at the beginning of the show that I had to prove some things to myself first. But um, now when I'm, I have this, like, feeling of, like, a gut feeling and a knowing sensation that I just have something now. And I have so much more to give to life, to serve, and to really offer the world. So, I mean what I want to do through this is obviously provide value um, to my own life and to others. Um, and now that I'm just come conscious and I'm in the middle of this transfer transformation and what I know, how, what I know what I stand for inside. I feel that I'm more than, I'm, I'm more equipped than ever to really, you know, help others who may be suffering with similar situations. So in that sense, um, I'm excited to move through the recovery and continue with recovery to see, the impact that I can have. And, you know, so um, staying with the Toronto thing, because, man, Brady, this was like a fucking movie when I was in Toronto for a month and, and two weeks. Like, some of it, so for some of the viewers who obviously Brady and I talked a little about, about what your mind's like, and, and there's, and when you're fiending, not, none of the repercussions matter. You, you're just, you want that fix and that's it. So some of the things daily I had to come up with whatever four five six different different heists you know i had to we had to, i end up teaming up with a few other homeless people and we would plan all these different i don't know what you call it out west but i learned in ontario they call them flexes we had to pull some flexes to get some money so that's that's when um i did this one thing i mean i i came up with this brilliant plan at the time that i thought um um at the time in Toronto, it's when the masks were in very, very high. They were enforcing masks hard. So 
You know, I always joked. Well, sorry, I always joked because I was in recovery at this time, and I, I know the stories that you're gonna like don't know them. But I did yeah. the same thing when the mask thing was going on. I was like, it happened too late for if you. This was the, if this was the way it was in 2015, I would have never got caught. Like I always used to, used to make jokes because I was like, this is a this is a you know a robber's like dream come true with these masks. Anyways, I just had to kind of make light yeah. of the situation. But it, please continue on. No, I'm the same way. I tell my buddies to this day all the time, like, fuck, man, that the masks were were my hidden gem. Like, I got it. I I didn't get caught at all in Toronto. I am shocked. Like, the amount of stealing I did daily, so many times per day, I never got caught. And I got chased a few times. Um, and, but yeah, this one particular day, I, um, I went into the one of the major malls in downtown Toronto and I went to, well, first I came up with my plan, whatever. I did my, I guess, scouting or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I went and I figured that hidden footlocker, I can get, I met these guys at a hair barber who would take anything I, I can steal. So they, they kind of said, uh, we want shoes. We want stuff at footlocker. So I was like, okay, I'll go get footlocker. So what I did was I went to a, a secondhand sports store. I stole a referee jersey and I went to Foot Locker. I had the mask on and it was, it's such a big Foot Locker that I was able to hide in clothes and, and put this referee jersey on and pretend like I was a new worker. That's what I did. I, I pretended that I was an, on my first day on the job. I went and talked to one guy. I said, it's my first day on the job, blah, blah, blah. He's, the guy was like, oh, welcome. Good to have you, blah, blah, blah. I said, can you just show me around? And, and so I know what to get when someone asks. So he brought me to the back, showed me around. And and uh, a few minutes passed by. We both go back in to the main store. And yeah, by this time, I had my bike already stashed behind the mall at the Foot Locker exit. Um, and this is like, you're, you're, it's just crazy. Like so many, so many parallels to our story. Not Foot Locker, <laughs> but I'm like, oh my God, dude, we were this, yeah. the same life. Keep going, please. <laughs> So yeah, I, I had my bike behind Full Locker. I filled up two hockey bags of just, I didn't even look in these boxes. I just threw boxes in. If there were shoes in and no sizes, I didn't care. Bunch of hats and jackets. And I put the two bags on my back. I walked out, got on my bike and I pedaled away. I just pedaled for like, whatever, 15, 20 minutes to get out of that area. I went to um, the hairdressers. They were Caribbean hairdressers. I still remember. I want to go see them when I get back to Toronto. Um, and yeah, they were, they were welcoming me with open arms with those packages. But here's the thing, Brady, it was about 2000, just over 2000 worth of, of merchandise. I stole, they give you one third, fuck one third. I left with 40 bucks enough to get two points of fat and all. So yeah, that's what they do. Those bad. Yeah, I, I mean, they know exactly. They see what kind of person's coming in and they know I'm not going to say no to it. So, I mean, whatever, anyway that's irrelevant to how much I lost or where, you know, I, I, I stole it all, but still you, you, you're so desperate that you, you'll take anything someone gives you. So yeah, that was one of, uh, one of the plans I, I came up with and did another one was, um, there was a, a, like a Columbia ski store. They sell all ski stuff, snowboarding, uh, North face shit. And it was kind of the same technique. I put my bike in the back. I, I went this time. I didn't act like a worker. I just filled up some bags and I ran out the back entrance or I didn't run. I walked out the back entrance. I got on my bike and I stashed all the stuff I stole in a dumpster 
after I put in the dumpster, I, before I went in that store, I seen there was construction crew outside, whatever, but it was lunch hour and they weren't there. So what I did was I, when I ran out the back door and stashed my stuff, I threw on one of your vests and I, there was a stop oh, sign. Yeah. And I pretended, I pretended to be a fucking construction worker until cops came or whatever. So they didn't come. I ended up throwing their shit back and I got my stuff out of the dumpster, went back to those guys, sold the stuff. So these are just like, those are just two stories of a month and a half of just mayhem in Toronto. I ended up, I learned how to steal and hotwire those uh, mopeds that the city, the city rents. Did you use a paper clip? No, he had this, you take the seat off and you got to undo some fuses and you take, put a screwdriver in something. And, but anyways, yeah. So we were taking mopeds. Then I linked up with a guy that looked just like Osama bin Laden. His name was Kali. And man, he was, he brought me all around the city, showing me like how to be homeless essentially. And, um, I had a Narcan Kali about five times. Um, yeah. So it was just, um, just it happens such- quickly, eh? Like it happens quickly. And I think, you know, for me was, you know, I did a lot of the same things over the years, the year of me being homeless and things that I never thought imaginable, you know, doing break in enters, stealing cars, doing the same stuff. I dress up like a construction worker more times than I can count stealing generators off of job sites and different things. Like I was telling my girlfriend that story a couple of weeks ago. But like that is where addiction takes you. It doesn't matter if you were a division one hockey player, if, you know, anything like this can happen to anybody. And until you've lived it, you can't possibly understand. But like that is where addiction takes you. You're so desperate that you start resorting to doing anything and everything. And it's always a process, but it's always the same story. You get introduced to it by somebody along the way. And eventually, as you, you know, you do more of that, it becomes almost just normal like this is just what i'm doing now this is my life now and uh you know you're very you're kind of almost i don't know i want to don't know if you're lucky you didn't get caught i guess you are now because you're clean um but you know you very easily could have end up wound up in jail and there's a very good chance that if you did go in there you would have got back out and and went right back to it because again that's the power of addiction right And, and until we face you know our traumas and our demons and get to the root of why we're we're doing those things in the first place, then it'll be that sort of just constant revolving door of either being homeless, uh, you know, couch surfing, rehabs, jails, whatever. So what was the ultimate deciding, you know, moment for you where it was like, Hey, listen, I've been doing this for X number of years. I've been to rehab. I've been homeless. I'm now committing crimes on the street of Toronto. Like what, what was the breaking point of, Okay, like I'm, I got to get my life back together. Where was that moment of clarity for you? Okay, so I guess there was a couple, but I mean, when so coming back to that shelter, when I so the month and whatever two weeks pass, and I'm now the way my last night at the shelter happened was there's this guy in the shelter got fentanyl and crack stolen while he was sleeping or while he was OD'd. I'm not sure. But the guy thought it was me, which I, I can all confess to all, all my heist and my stealing, but this I did not do. I didn't take his shit. So there was this lady who apparently saw what, who stole the guy's stuff. And um, this lady I would talk to, she was maybe like 71 years old in the shelter. She was just a nice old lady who I would always go talk to when 
when I had no one to talk to there. So what she goes, she goes, um, she goes, listen, I heard the guys talking and they plan on getting you while you're sleeping tonight. I, I'm not a rat. I'm not going to go tell. I, I don't want to tell on the guy because I saw he stole it from him, but I'm not a rat, but I, I don't think it's right that they're going to get you and you didn't do it. I was like, wow, fuck. Thank you for this. Uh, so maybe like 20 minutes later, I got my shit and I walked, I left that shelter. I didn't know to me that meant I was going to get stabbed or, I was, you know, that's what else you're going to do in a shelter. So, um, I got my shit. I left. I went back toward the area because I was on one side of Toronto. I went back into middle of Toronto to try to get enough fentanyl to get a train on go home. Because at this point, the day before I had just gotten a welfare check in my account. So I had some money now. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I have money enough for a train ticket. Now I can get back to Montreal and I can buy some fentanyl to get me. So that's what I did. I got, I got enough fentanyl to get me back on a train ticket to get back to Montreal. So now this is about maybe September 15th round, mid September, um, on the trade ride home three times the the worker had to come to me and wake me up and from an overdose in the bathroom um from that's just from toronto montreal and when i got to montreal um to the train station i called my son's mother at the time my son's mother and she she was reluctant to come pick me up at the train station uh, nobody wanted anything to do with me which i don't blame them i didn't want anything to do with myself at the time um she reluctantly agreed to come pick me up at the train station. Um, soon as I got off the phone with her to call her to come get me, I ran behind the building to do a quick hit so I can be a little high when she gets me. Turned out I overdosed again behind that train station, but I came to and woke. There was people to bring me to and wake me up in time before she would get there to pick me up. So I came to before she picked me up. She obviously realized that I was out of it. Um, we got back to my town. I tried to go places nobody wanted me around so i said fuck it i'm gonna go to downtown montreal and that's where my stint of homelessness in montreal began i went down to montreal i this time i knew around the city i knew like my way around um but i did not know anyone with fentanyl or anything that i needed uh that first day i met a guy named sammy a big six seven guy who who was homeless who uh i said hey do you know where to find this stuff so long story short, he introduced me to the right people. Um, I ended up staying in his tent underneath the overpass on uh, right near the Bell Center for a few days. And then we got in an argument. He thought I stole his big garbage can of cans, empty cans. He thought I took them, <laughs> which I yeah, didn't. Sounds, so, about, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my bed in that tent was gone. So now I had to find another place. Um, so yeah, that's when I would just jump around in Montreal. I would sleep underneath condo porches. I would go in um, condo buildings and I learned to sleep in uh, janitor rooms. Those are always open and um, heated parking garages. Uh, you sleep in the Metro till it closes. If you find like distillery rooms inside metros, you sleep in there. All these different ways of just trying to find a warm place to sleep. And that's where, uh, that's where I ended up in Montreal. So the overdoses continued in Montreal all over the place. Um, and then what happened, Brady, is one winter night, it was, so that was September I got to Montreal. 
Um, I was back and forth from my hometown for like a month or two. And then I was on the street for like a, a straight, maybe month, almost two months in Montreal until I, I say I walk into my miracle. So what happened is um, in downtown Montreal, there's a place called uh, Atwater. And there was, um, there was some great folks from my hometown who put together this homeless tent and sponsored a tent to put in this park that was heated to allow homeless people to come in and sleep in the tent and get a meal. And in the morning they would close the tent, you go off and you come back at night to sleep. So um, I remember hearing about this tent. I was, I was more down into the city on the East side more. And I heard about this tent on the West side of the city at Atwater who, who they give meals to in a, in a warm bed. So I was like, man, I'm going to go to that tent tonight. I got nowhere to go. Um, so I was, I walked to that tent one night and, um, as I got closer, I saw, um, I saw two men standing there and one guy had a Mohawk warrior flag on his fate on his mask. And instantly I knew that that was someone from my hometown. So I, I kind of, my face was covered. I changed my walk. I changed my voice. I like, kind of limped into the tent and I was like, Hey, can I sleep here? Uh, or I'm looking for a, f soon as I saw that warrior on the guy's face, my mind changed. I did not no longer want to sleep there or get a meal. I just told them, I'm like, I'm looking for a friend. I opened the door, I closed it, and I start walking away. And I hear people calling my name. Wes, Wes, that's you. Is that you? And I was like, I look back and I start running. Because, Brady, if I knew that it turned out that that tent was sponsored by people from my hometown, and if I knew that those people were there, I would have never went to that tent. I was so ashamed, embarrassed of what I looked like, where, where my life transpired, where I was now and how things were, were in my life. So I, I definitely would not have went there. So I start trying to run away from these two guys. They chased me through the park, down the road. I eventually stopped and we spoke. We had a good, whatever, a good 20 minute conversation, emotional conversation. Uh, one was my childhood friend who I went to from kindergarten to sixth grade with he's the one that recognized me when I had my face covered limping changing my voice um so they they kind of they knew who I was and they they just I guess didn't understand they were shocked to see me just as shocked as I was to see them so what happened was that night they got me a bed in that tent and they just said look be back here tomorrow at seven if you want to get help we're going to get you some help and um we'll go from there so that following night I I made it back to that tent at seven o'clock. I ended up sleeping that night and they brought me the next morning back to my hometown to, um, they had a hotel set up for me, um, for like three, four nights when I detoxed. So I detoxed in that hotel for three, four nights. Then I went to stay with my mom and my son's mom for the next two weeks until I went to treatment. I got to treatment. This is 2021 now of February. And obviously this time I, I knew I want to be here. Um, I was ready to get honest. I was ready to face my traumas and just to learn me. I, I was ready to learn how to live because really I never learned how to live. I, I never learned what good quality and a character person possesses when they live a quality, healthy life. So, um, yeah, one thing I heard in, in one of the treatments was we stop growing and maturing and aging when our addiction starts. So to me, that hit home for me so much because when I started at 19 years old, 
19 to 31 years old, I didn't grow shit. I didn't know how to apply for a credit card. I didn't know how to call and make a doctor's appointment. I didn't, I didn't know how to look people in the eye, how to have a meeting, any of that. I stopped maturing and growing at 19 years old. So now fast forward to 32 and I'm, I'm learning all these things now how to live. And um, so, yeah, what happened was in my, around my second to third week in treatment, um, this, this really extraordinary mind shift happened to me, Brady. It was, um, it was really, I became conscious and aware to the fact that if I could change the way I think I can change the way I live. So for my entire life up to that point, I had zero, zero self-belief. I did not know anything about how powerful thought was, how much of an asset our mind is when we learn how to use it. Um, I just knew nothing about the mind and how, how we can leverage it and, and do anything when we learn how to use the mind. So, um, yeah, when I was, when I was in addiction, um, I was the absolute passenger of my life vehicle. I would, I had no control as we were talking about, I, I was in the trunk, fuck the passenger seat. I was in the trunk of my life vehicle yeah. and it was just, uh, no control, having absolutely zero control or power of choice over anything you do. So, um, yeah, what happened was I became so instilled and I, I married my recovery. It became a lifestyle to me. I had to, it had to be a daily lifestyle in order for me to really get it this time and to, and to figure out how to live a healthy life. So, I mean, um, so, so was you went to, you went to rehab and that time. And since then you've, you've remained in recovery. Have you had any slips along the way? Like what did, what did that look like? Cause I know again, it's, it's, it's a process for, for anyone that walks that road. I mean, I had more relapses than I can count and, you know, different at different times, even like mental health relapses, if you will. Um, like what, what does that journey look like for you since, you know, uh, February of 2021? Yeah, so I went in February of 2021. I stayed three months, February, March, April, May. I got out, I think, June 1st. So when I got out June 1st, I I stayed clean for maybe a month. And then I relapsed July, August, September. And I got back on my recovery road somewhere in October. I don't know the exact date to this day. I know it's in October sometime, um, the middle of October. Um, what I learned to do is, and what I tell myself daily now is, um, I don't count the days I make my days count. And, and that's Amen. where, that's where my recovery lies right now is, is day by day. Um, being in love with my routines are so strict in the mornings and, uh, yes, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one minute at a time. It could be one fucking song at a time sometimes. So, I love that one song at a time. I like that one. I never heard that one before. One song at a time. Hold on. <laughs> I can love it, that one. That's a good one. I'm really learning that really it's where, where your focus goes is where the energy goes. You know, you'll, what you focus on is what you get. The self-talk, all the, um, the mental parts of that, you know, you, you say words out loud, you give words power. And, and that's kind of where a, so what I did was I told you a little bit about, um, I mean, a few days ago, I think I had messaged you about it where throughout this 
mind shift in treatment. I got in, I indulged myself into digital marketing, e-commerce, um, all that type of stuff online. And, um, that be, I became infatuated with it. I was, I became obsessed with it and all my time, all my hours in the day, most of them, I am, I'm on a binge learning journey right now. I'm about seven months or I would say six months into in-depth learning. I was able to launch my agency last week. I'm about to finish my website. Maybe tomorrow, the next day, I'm going to launch that on National Aboriginal Day. But, um, you know, things start to happen. And I've heard this from numerous people in, in recovery where the longer you stick with it, if you stay consistent and you can stick to recovery, these small little gifts start falling from the sky. And, and that's what I'm, I'm in that process and transformation right now. And it's sometimes it's hard to stay focused and consistent and you hit a plateau with the motivation, but that's, that's what hard is. And that's what I'm in now. And I know that you, I stick to this. I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in where I'm going. And it's just, uh, it's an amazing journey to this point. And, uh, you know, I'm only fucking a year and a half in, like we said, but I mean, um, the hard part was like four, five, six months in, I want to do everything. I want to open my business. I want to start talking to motivational speeches. I want to get out there. But, you know, there's a lot of things that, that go into recovery before you can start helping others. There's what they tell you on the plane, right? Is it goes, you go down in a crash, you put your mask on first before you help others. And, and that's kind of what I had to figure out and, and really dial in before I can even think of helping others or being a father, being a friend. So, yeah, I mean, um, that's how I, uh, that's how I ended up in my recovery road. I got out. I am, uh, I started, uh, I start training and working with athletes in my hometown last year. Um, and with this Brady, as you know, I see your coaching and guiding a lot of young kids. It's, there's uh there's no reward when you see those smiles or you teach them something and they do the move and they look at you with big eyeballs like shock and you know and now the way i my mindset with the way i guide and mentor these kids is absolutely totally opposite than <clears throat> than how i talked about earlier with programming how my mind was programmed as a young kid so now i just i i rarely work i mean i work on skills with the kids but that's secondary to me it's instilling program in their mind to believe in themselves and to know that they're good enough and they can achieve whatever they, they strive out for. So when, when you, when there's a culture like that, that we never really had around our hometown, it was always jealousy and, and, you know, envy, no one wants to see the other person succeed. If it's better than your brother, then you don't want him to go to the next level and all that sort of nonsense. So there's, there's a lot of people in our hometown right now. It's getting exciting in the athletic world where we're, we're trying to breed and guide and mentor a lot of these athletes. And my big thing is doing it that way, instilling and programming their mind to believe in themselves. Because once you do that, now they're equipped with the tools where they can just thrive. You know, there's no more self-doubt. And I mean, I tell this story a few times. When I was going into my senior year, my coach, would I was getting emails from NHL teams after the game. There's this agent wants to see you, blah, blah, blah. And I wouldn't believe them when they would say that. I would stay in the locker room and I wouldn't go out because I thought they were fucking with me. In my mind, I did not believe that I was that good to, to have agents come talk to me, to have NHL teams interested. So, I mean, I, that stuck with me right until I was, whatever, 22 years old. And now I'm only learning the power of our minds at 32 or 33. 
whatever. I am 33, I think. But uh, yeah, so now it's just a beautiful journey of, of keeping my recovery, waking up each day and looking forward to what the day is going to bring me instead of, you know, surviving through each day when I wake up. It was all fucking survival mode, Brady. You know that every day was survival mode. There was no room to actually live, to, to enjoy the sun, to go have a good meal, to go for a walk, to fish. None of that exists when you're in addiction. Now I've, you know, it's, I watch a commercial, I'm crying. I'm watching uh, a walk. <laughs> and you are so much alike, dude. Yeah. We have the, such a similar story and the same kind of, you know, I'm the very much the same. And it's amazing to be able to, to, to have those feelings, to have those emotions, to go outside and be like, I remember like early on in my recovery, I'd be like, holy shit, look at those trees. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty awesome, you know? Like yeah. for whatever, for 12 years, it's like I didn't even look at anything but, you know, whatever I was narrowed in on trying to find whatever it was that I needed at that time, right? And, and yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Waz, we're going to wrap this up, but I want to I want to extend an invite to have you back on the show again soon. And I also, um, you know, kind of unfortunately, we didn't time this better for the launch of your website and everything else. But when that does happen, I think we should do something on Instagram because you, you are on Instagram. You're not really like super, super active on there or whatever, but I anticipate. Which is gonna, which is, yeah. Which is going to change by the way. That's now right. that, yeah, the the PTSD is gone a little bit where I'm I'm a little bit comfortable getting myself out there again. Um with my digital marketing agency and that I have to be more more consistent online now. So yes, you you will all see a lot more of me on social media now. Perfect. Let me know when that is and we'll go live and, and we'll get your stuff on there and I'll share it on mine. I've, you know, I started, I have to remember, I started with zero followers like two and a half years ago on Instagram and I'm closing in on like four. And to me, followers, I'll be honest, and no disrespect to anybody that follows me, but followers to me doesn't mean shit at all. It's just a way, like, you know, I, I did get caught in that little cycle of like, oh, I'm trying to grow it or whatever, but not for my own ego. It was more like, more people need to hear this message and other people's messages through my podcast. So that, that was kind of what the grind was about. But now, you know, I'm so many people, man, I found when I was on the, the, the come up on social media, a lot of people that I reached out to like selfish, like big followings, but not willing to help out the little guy, like somebody that's just trying to start. And, and it's like, well, like, come on, like, why not? When, when, when I, whenever I see somebody trying do something good, whether it's a company or themselves or whatever, they don't even sometimes have to ask me to share it or to bring them. I'll be like, Hey, I like what you're doing. I see you have not that many followers. Let's get some more eyes on it because now I'm kind of, I don't have like a million followers, but still a pretty like bigger following. And I just wish more people, even people with more followers than me would be more helpful to me and other people to be like, but they're just, people are so like, I just find people are so, fucking selfish man and they're like ah oh, it's just like and their social media is such a it's such a crock of shit but at especially the end of the day influencers, especially those influencers who've done nothing to nothing to have, you know they're just whether who knows whatever they have big tits or they have uh you know <laughs> the guy the guy has eight pack or whatever you know it's some of these people are but I mean, kudos to them. But if, uh, yeah, most of them, I've reached out to a lot to try to help me with the influencing, with, you know, getting the word out there about digital marketing that you don't get any answers back. They don't even read your messages. So, but whatever. Let, yeah. You let me know, man. And I'll tell you what I have. 
I have some pretty incredible, I know you do too, but I have some pretty incredible people in my life and I've never been more connected with people and especially like the hockey world. Um, I don't know who's going to watch or listen to this, but I'm telling you, I got an email the other day from Sam Gagne about this summer and like the schedule for some of the hockey training coming up. And my, like it was an email, like a mass email to a bunch of hockey players. And of course I'm running the ice for these pro guys and for the younger guys. And along with some other people, it's not just my show or anything like that. I'm just part of it, but I'm reading the list of names on this email. And I like, I'm not even going to tell you, but you can think like, you think of the best player in the world. He was on that email list. Like just like who's who of NHL, like players who might be in Muskoka this summer to get on the ice with like us. And I'm like, I looked at my girlfriend and I'm like, I was fucking in jail three years ago. Now come with <laughs> yeah. this email of, you know, like of, you know, who's in this email. So it's just it, that those are the gifts, right? You put in the work and literally gifts start to fall was. And I have absolutely zero doubt in my mind that you're going to make significant impacts. Um, you know, you talk about working with young and it's not just athletes, it's young people, right? I think we focus on athletes because that's what we were and that's kind of our niche and that's really where I want to focus. But just we just need to instill people with like having, you know, belief in themselves and self-worth and there's something to be said about that. And, you know, you look at and I was very much the same as you, right? Like kind of just relied on my skill and my ability and it got me, you know, to places like pretty high up in hockey, but all along the way, much like you, in my mind, I was a piece of shit. I don't belong here. These guys are better than me. This must be a joke. Like they're just fucking with me, whatever it is, very much the same. And I, you know, I hate to like be like, oh, well, you know, what if, what if, but what if you and I had any sort of self-belief while we were going through those times and that opportunity we had, right? And what a gift it can be to, to share our experience and to, you know, we had to go through that shit so that we could make this world a better place, so that we could help younger athletes, so that we could help, you know, people like to not go down the same path that we went down. We struggled so that many others didn't have to. And like, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful things happen when they're supposed to happen was and uh i couldn't be more proud of you i'm so thankful to you very grateful for your time before we go i just want to get a couple of comments um there was comments coming in the whole episode i'm sorry we were just kind of oh was there <laughs> firing away there and if anybody has anything last thoughts or questions while we wrap it up here over the next couple of minutes fire away now is your time um my mic is terrible tonight. Uh, Jackie Harner watching says, doctor gave me oxys in 10th grade after surgery, got withdrawals at 17, cutting class to get one. I was 17, a kid mom takes it, put two and two together. I now tell all doctors I have issues with oxys before any surgery. Really smart, Jackie. Uh, we got a comment coming in here from mm, Matt. I, so I'm gonna butcher your name. Mickey and Tommy, sorry. Mickey, maybe? Sorry. Says, Many will benefit from hearing your story. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Um, what else we got? We got Mike Sasky watching. Says, proud of you, buddy. Takes a lot of character to open up and share. I have no doubt you will go back to your younger, clean, athletic self. Was Remember the values that made you so good in hockey and in life. Thanks for watching, Mike. Anthony Guida says, coming up on 11 years clean. Please keep it up. 
but please keep it going guys it can only get better and better thanks for sharing your story proud of you guys uh they're back again i'm not even going to try to say your name the pathway out of hell is hard to find but when you get there it is the best place amen uh my old skills coach danny cassidy from when i was a kid frequent flyer here on hockey down back love this guy look He's got his own story. We got to get you on the show, Dan. He says, ah, oh, man, ah, oh, man, definitely a raw message in the walk of true addiction from peaks into valleys and darkness. I praise both of you for sharing the depths of personal transformation and recover recovery in our journey. His story very much like ours as well. Sorry to out you, Danny, but I'm going to encourage you to come on the show because I've known you my whole life. Zale says God gave his toughest battles to his strongest warriors. That quote lives with me on my arm. I absolutely love that one. God doesn't qualify to call. He call he calls the one qualified. Something like that is uh what is it? I forget the quote, but yeah. Uh, uh, very much the same. I like that one. Former NHLer Mike Broder for goalie. No relation to Martin Broder and former guest of the show. Mike, uh thanks for watching says love this great work fellas mike does a lot of great work in the mental health spaces too especially plant medicines um big big oh. advocate for that yeah mike we got to get you back on the show uh gary deck jr says definitely need to do episode number two carrie stacy watching i'm assuming that's one of your relatives was says yeah. love you was so proud of you thank you for sharing your story uh shade phillips keep up the good work my old hockey coach. I don't know if you know Shade. Um, yeah. Zales as well. So pr proud of you both and what you're doing uh, to better the community. My guy, Darren Bruff, watching down there in Etobicoke. He is actually, if you've ever seen anybody watching, if you've seen on Instagram, there's a Zamboni with a big puck support logo on it. That's my guy, Darren, driving it. He says, was in pain for over 40 years this september the 11th will be five years clean off anything if i can do you can stay strong love life congratulations darren love you man um there we go jonathan higgins says love you dale pretty wild story with goulet knew about it not to that extent let's connect oh that's my old teammate my old teammate at uvm there you go. There's one door right there that's already open for you to connect with an old team. Here go! Here go! <laughs> that's awesome. Um, Sandy Goodleaf, I am so proud of you, Waz. And also, we have, uh, I'm assuming a family member of yours here saying, Waz, you're 35, LOL. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always mess up my age. I do. Oh, man, that's okay, because you feel young, you're younger and at heart, and age is just a number, and we have so much. We have, we've already been through so much, but now it's time to, to take that pain, turn it into purpose, and, and use our experiences and our pain to, to make the lives better of those around us and uh, in our communities, man. So, Waz, thank you so much. Um, that's, that's why I do. That's why, yeah. Absolutely, right there. That's that's it man right and so that's that's the other thing that happens when we choose recovery is you know people come back into our lives and and we're able to be the best versions of ourselves not just for us but for other people um last comment darren saying you guys rock so happy to see waz make it out
stay strong, bro. And yeah, like, dude, like we fucking made it, man. Like not a lot of people make it right. Like, no. seriously, I just had, you know, one of my best friends back home overdose last month. I've had a couple people um, not far from here in Aurelia that were friends of mine over my addiction years, just like two of them in the last week pass away. My ex-girlfriend just messaged me this morning. Her boyfriend died this morning and she was in, you know, so like this, this is the, this is the number one killer ages 18 to 45 right now is is overdose, toxic drug deaths. Yeah. And when you get to where we were at was, the vast majority of people don't make it out. So it's our duty to share our experience, to show others that they can either get out of it if they're in it, or even maybe better, don't make that choice in the first place, right? Bang on, 100%. Brady, thank you for having me, allowing me this platform to share. Um, obviously, I said it's been years in the making. I I feel like um, there's a whole planet off my shoulders in a sense. And thank you. You're most welcome. I was muted there for a second and I can't wait to do it again. And we'll probably see you next time anyways on, on an Instagram live. And please keep me in the loop as soon as you have a web, if your website launches or anything you have going on, I will answer. I will help you. I will connect you with anybody that I can um, to, to help you get going on your journey, man. Cause it's, I've always said this when it comes to this, it takes an army, right? Like it, it, it takes a collaborative, collaborative effort to, to tackle these topics that we talked about here tonight. So the world's a much better place with you in it and a much better place with you in it clean, man. So stay on the right path. I'm here for you. And I can't wait to do this again. Thank you for your time was, and thank you for your bravery and sharing your story here tonight. Good night, Braids. Good night, buddy. All right, guys, that's Stacy. Or sorry, I almost said Stacy Wazentio. Wazentio Stacy, my guy. Wow, that is why I started the podcast. Right there, because I knew that more than just my story being able to help people, I knew that there were other hockey players specifically that had or were living a similar life to that that I lived because when I was living it I thought I was the only one then I started to hear the stories of Mitch Fadden and the Matthew Lazinskis the ones who had passed away and I said holy shit how many people have we lost how many more people are still struggling right now how many people need support how many people have made it out I really went to work with that and you know I was able to connect with Waz and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for him. I'm so grateful for his counselor in rehab who I get, I, I meant to bring this up. She actually emailed me and asked me for my number. Remember I said, I didn't know how he got my number. It was because his counselor emailed me. I remember that um, after he started to talk early on in the, in the show. Sorry. Uh, Danny Cassie saying I'm all set up any upcoming podcast, brother. That's awesome. I can't wait uh, also want to just highlight this one, Charles watching saying, I relapsed twice since the last time I watched one of your streams says, I'm so ashamed, but I'm trying to get better. Now, listen, it doesn't have to be a part of your story, but when we're talking addiction, I would say 99 out of a hundred times that I've seen relapse is a part of the story. And I've shared this on the show before. 
one of my very first days in the fir- in rehab, the first time I went out of the 10 or whatever the hell it was, this old timer stood up at the end of my very first meeting. And he said, if you guys ever fall off the wagon, it doesn't mean that you have to fall into the ditches. You can just pick yourself back up right where you are and get back on that wagon. And I didn't really understand, under, really take it in to understand what he meant by that. Because for years after that, I would relapse. And when I would relapse, I would, like Charles, I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. I was so just defeated. I didn't want to admit it to anybody that I relapsed. I didn't want to, and it would make it so much worse. All of a sudden it would go from relapsing one time to like a year would go by of full blown addiction. And then eventually multiple years. And it's like, holy shit, that one relapse turned into two years and multiple overdoses. So if Charles get back on the wagon, anybody else you're watching, you're listening, you relapse, pick yourself back up, tell somebody so that you're not alone with it and make a plan to get your life back on track. It does not define you. One relapse does not define you. If you stay there, if you stay there and continually use and beat yourself down, that's when it becomes a major problem. I'm not condoning relapsing. I'm just saying it's often part of people's recovery journeys. It wasn't, it wasn't mine. It wasn't Waz's. Look where we're at today. And so many other people can say the same thing. So Charles, Pick yourself back up, brother. We all got you. You can do this. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind, but it takes, you know, we've talked about it early on, getting honest with ourselves, with those around us, really, really, really important and taking action, whatever that may be for you. I don't, I don't know what it is, Charles. I don't know your story, but I know that you're stronger than you could ever imagine. You're stronger than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. And I'm not trying to make you cry right now, Charles, but sometimes it's a good thing to cry. So embrace those tears, let it out, feel the feels, as my girlfriend Jenna often says, feel the feels, let it out, let it out. It's great to cry. We'll be back here next Monday night, um, I believe with Mitch Morose. Don't quote me on that. He was supposed to be on a couple weeks ago, uh, but some things got shifted and we pushed the date. Repeat guest, he's in a much different place today than he was a year and a half ago or whenever it was that he was on. So I'm really excited to get Mitchie back on and we're going to make this more of a regular thing. If you like it, please press that like button, subscribe on YouTube. If you're watching on Facebook, share it to your wall. Is that what they still call it? Your wall? I'm not sure. If you really love the show, get off of Facebook and please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Share it to your Instagram stories. I don't know. Thank you to anyone that supported this show, my social media, shared my stuff or told somebody about it. That is how this has grown. I didn't and I really still don't have the money to pay for advertising and to do all that. I don't really have any sponsors for the show that are monetary at this time. I haven't really gone after any sponsors. So that's not really what it's about for me. I just rely on you guys. We're family here, the Hockey to Helmback family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to Waz and Teostasi for his courage here tonight, sharing his story. Certainly going to make a difference, not just from this show, but I'm excited to see where his journey takes him. Puck support, pucksupport.com. We have a new line out one day at a time. There's some other new stuff coming down the pipe. Don't tell Susan. It's actually her idea. She can't get mad. She's upstairs 
have a new shirt coming out in the next couple of days as well. Um, use promo code. I think promo code SUMMER. SUMMER will save you 20% off. Let's see. Oh, no. It's B-L-E-A-V. That's the promo code we're going to go to. B-L-E-A-V. One word. B-L-E-A-V. 20% off. PuckSupport.com. Everything is done right here in-house. Pressed. Used to be me doing it all. Now Susan's doing primarily all the work down in the shop. Grateful for her. She's the other half of the Puck Support clothing line. We now have a couple thousand people wearing Puck Support all over North America, Europe, and even in Australia. That's right, down under. Some Puck Support stuff down there. So thank you to everyone who supported the clothing line. That was never going to be a part of my life. I never wanted to start a clothing line. I just didn't know what else to do. Could have never imagined it going as well as it has. Again, we don't pay for ads. We don't really push it. It's off our small so, uh, small social media. I'm having a hell of a time talking tonight. At Puck Support, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, at Puck Support. If you don't know what Puck Support is, please check it out. Consider yourself getting a hoodie. I'll just, for anyone that hasn't seen the show, the most important part about the clothing line is we put a name of a hockey player who's passed away by suicide or overdose in all of the, all of the, the merchandise in our hats. They're on the inside here. Clay Plume, former Lethbridge Hurricane, died of an, a fentanyl overdose in 2021. I played against Clay in my sweater here. Daniel Miner, former Barry Colt, also died of a fentanyl overdose in 2021. Shout out to the Miner family. There's a very good chance they're watching right now. Tom, Michelle, Lindsay, Harper, Ainsley, Zach, Jack, Haley. Love you guys. They've become family to, to us here, certainly to me and to Puck Support. I love you guys. It is very important to us to honor and remember those hockey players that have sadly lost their, their battle to mental health and or addiction. I think that's it. Once again, this show is brought to you by Puck Support, True Temper Hockey, Edges of Muskoka, and Blade Tape. We'll give some Blade Tape away on the next episode because I got to get going. Got a date with my daughter in the morning. Thank you all for watching. Until next time. Find some gratitude, a lot of it. If you're having trouble doing that, download the gratitude journal. Follow along. Do it for yourself. Start to write. Get your thoughts down, your goals down. Make a plan. Get organized. It's still a process for me, but this has been a game changer. Game changer. PuckSupport.com. Documents are available on there. Daily Act of Kindness. My favorite part of that, it challenges you every day to do something kind. And often I do things for other people, but I'm like, you know what? We have to, we have to be kind to ourselves. Daily act of kindness, it's, it's not selfish to be kind to ourselves. That's what I'm thinking anyways. We'll see you guys next Monday. Thank you again to Waz and to everybody who watched it live. Listening after the fact, thank you. Till next time, have a great day if you so choose.
was my last rookie of the year. Swept out the Bronco, made it up with my gear. That's the pain when it seems yearning for that buzz. Twelve your journey through the depths of hell. Criminal fence and all I struggle, that's well. Abuse and views out the shadow of who I once was. Can't see you at this week. I'm gonna matter where I'm gonna be. Be to get my life here back on track. Used to toe deck him like Wayne Gretzky. But now I'm toe deck and focus on Hastings. Intervenous drugs weren't enough gang notes. The wrong kind of how to ride the lightning. Sideboard ignored and hot and frowning. Talk to the hill and back with my recovery road. Can't see breathlessly. I'm all night or adrenaline. I need to get my life here back on track. Motion pain, I can't stop dying. Remember reflection, no sense flying. My inspiration, I get a feeling bad. Mental health of a hockey. Gotta get people talking. It's not the change of a game, it is real, but it's all. Now I live for the fuck addiction. I got on a few under the ones we lost. Finally doing what I'm meant to do. Strap on your page, you can follow me too. Give me your ear, you hustling, healing that podcast. Can't see breathlessly. I'm on my life here back on track. Emotions change, I can't stop crying. Never 